Welcome back to Across the Movie Hour, presented by Bulwark Plus. I am your host, Sonny Bunch, culture editor of The Bulwark. Uh, I'm joined, as always, by Alyssa Rosenberg of The Washington Post. Uh, Peter Suderman is sadly off today, but will hopefully be back next week. Alyssa, how are you today? I am happy to be talking about movies with you, Sonny. One friend, not multiple friends. First up... In controversies and controversies, feels like the wheels are kind of falling off the mighty Marvel machine. In a shocking move last week, longtime Marvel executive Victoria Alonso was fired by the studio. Alongside Kevin Feige and Lou D'Esposito, Alonso was considered one of the most powerful executives within the company. Her firing for cause, like she was fired for cause. She was she was like, you got to get off the lot. We're going to send a security guard with your boxes stuff rather than like being eased out with like a golden parachute and, you know, flowery praise and all that. It was a shock. People were shocked by it. The two sides uh, are currently litigating the dispute in the trades. Sources at Disney told The Hollywood Reporter that Alonzo was fired because of her work on the Oscar nominated Amazon produced film Argentina 1985. Those sources claim she was told several times that she could not produce films for another company. And then she did this anyway. And they were like, fine, but you can't go out there and promote it. And then she did that anyway. And they were like, you're really pushing it. And then she was on the red carpet talking about Argentina 1985 instead of Black Panther Wakanda forever. And they were like, that's that's it. You're out. You're out. You're fired. Alonzo's attorneys fired back in Deadline and elsewhere. They directly played the diversity card. They said Alonzo was fired because she's a gay Latina who criticized Disney, and they are going to have a fight on their hands uh, in, in the weeks coming forward here. It's a big mess. We'll see how it plays out. Meanwhile, over the weekend, Jonathan Majors, uh, who was playing the big bad Kang the Conqueror in the new cycle of Marvel movies, was arrested on an assault charge. Majors and his reps claim that video evidence, recantation from the alleged victim, and testimony from witnesses will prove that Majors is not only innocent, but was actually the victim of this attack. All of this comes on the heels of Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania's fairly disastrous box office performance, and the underperformance of the last two big Marvel shows, She-Hulk and Miss Marvel, on Disney+. And it comes as non-comic franchises like Scream, Creed, and John Wick are all putting up record numbers for their respective franchises. There's a definite feeling that the tide is turning in terms of what audiences want, what studios are producing, and kind of how all of this stuff is getting treated in the press. But I I really think that one thing that has been underappreciated, really, about the first 10 years or so of Marvel movies is just how low drama they were. Like, sure, there were the occasional bits of intrigue, right? Like when Patty Jenkins left Thor The Dark World shortly before production began. You know, like, things happen. But there was never anything huge, right? Like, Robert Downey Jr. didn't relapse into drugs mid-shoot, you know? Yeah, I mean, given the gamble of putting the entire franchise on his shoulders, like if you add that in as a degree of difficulty, things went shockingly well. And it's interesting. I mean, I have a lot of questions about all of these stories. And I think clearly more remains to be seen. I Um, have all the answers. So ask ask away. So an interesting question, why wasn't Disney producing this passion project of Alonzo's, right? I mean- You know, she's a top female executive at one of their studios. It's a passion project about, you know, the Argentinian regimes. You know, it ends up obviously with Oscar buzz. Like, how does something like that land at Amazon in the first place, right? Like, doesn't, why wouldn't Disney? sort of throw her a bone on that one. That Too controversial. Sort of to Too controversial. You can't, you know, the last time that Disney got involved in geopolitics, 
Michael Eisner had to go to China and apologize for making Kundun and say, we will never work with Martin Scorsese again. It was a moral atrocity. They, they're not in that sort of business. I mean, we can argue that by making, you know, Mulan and Xinjiang, like they're still involved in geopolitics. But, you know, that aside, I mean, it's just it's interesting that this was something that she felt strongly enough about to sort of flout her contract and multiple warnings per Disney's telling. And yet, you know, they didn't sort of placate her by keeping the movie in the fold. I also sort of wonder where Kevin Feige is on all of this in terms of the, you know, the sort of VFX and production issues. I mean, Lady Lou, who, uh, you know, runs the gossip blog, Lady Gossip, points out, you know, I'm sure the only person getting any kind of benefit from the current situation is Kevin Feige, who retains both his position atop the Marvel pyramid and escapes any criticism or uncomfortable questions about his role in Marvel's pipeline problems. Curious that. And I would be fascinated to know what the sort of internal politics of the Marvelverse are, right? I mean, I cannot believe that there is no drama over sort of credit and public profiles and everything else there. And the person who writes sort of breaks open and writes the definitive like inside history of you know the Marvel Cinematic Universe's rise and fall will have an absolute bestseller on their hands. And then Well, you know, I yeah, can I yeah. because that's actually another really fascinating angle to all this is that yes. the, the 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 Marvel machine is a lockbox. Like, there are not catty, you know, back-channel leaks all the time in the trades. They do a very good job of keeping a very tight lid on not just plot details and and all that stuff, but everything else. I mean, like, I think, I I mean, part of it is fear, frankly, right? Nobody wants to cross Kevin Feige. Nobody's going to talk smack about Marvel and and what's going on there because they don't want to get iced out of what is, like, currently the most lucrative game in town. Yeah, I mean— A question I've always had about that, I don't have a lot of sense of how well directors who drop into that universe get paid. I mean, obviously, we know something about actors' compensation given, again, you know, like the mega deals for Robert Downey Jr. or the litigation over Scarlett Johansson's payout for Black Widow. If you're an actor, obviously, it makes sense to, you know, and you want to do that kind of work and get that check. Totally makes sense to play nice. But I have no idea if you're like, if you're Chloe Zhao, like, what did you get paid to direct The Eternals? I don't actually have a great sense of that. And I don't have an incredible idea of how lucrative it is for, you know, as the kind of indie directors they bring in to have done this. I mean, I have to imagine that some of the appeal is both the cred and the somewhat lower quote. And then, you know, they get the benefit of being able to say, like, I handled this huge production and, you know, was able to work under this system. So, I mean, I imagine Disney has good legal and, you know, as Lainey points out, it's it's pretty interesting that they've had a series of these sort of contractual disputes or screw ups. And so maybe they're just really, really good at writing their, you know, non-disparagement clauses, although I guess the National Labor Relations Board has uh, thrown those out retroactively and said that you can't use them. So maybe we'll learn a lot about the Marvel machine going forward. I mean, this goes back to my point, though, is that it's not it's not necessarily worrying about, you know, disparaging them and getting sued. It's, yeah. it's not working with them again. Like people don't want to yeah. turn off that that faucet. I mean, the sub story here, I think, is Marvel has come under fire a great deal recently for, let's say, the shoddiness of how the films look. They, you know, you have written about this. I have written about this. Basically, everybody who goes talked about it endlessly. Yeah, yeah, we we talk about it all the time to to the extent that people are probably looking at the description of this and skipping ahead to John Wick for like, do we really need more? Yes, you do. You need more Marvel chatter. But it was funny. I was talking to a friend last night 
just on the phone and he was like, yeah, you know, we never really get out to movies anymore. And we wanted to go see the new Ant-Man movie, Ant-Man and the Lost Quantum Mania. And we went, we saw it and it was fine. I, you know, I had a fine time in the theater. And then I went back and I read your review, Sonny. I was like, oh, you know what? That was right. The movie did kind of look like garbage. I didn't, yeah. I didn't really think about it at the time, but like it, it really did kind of look like trash. And, uh, you know, I, again, the, the kind of subtext here is that there's a lot of talk about who is responsible for that, who is, you know, supposed to be keeping an eye on the quality control here. Some people were pointing their finger at Alonzo and saying, like, she maintains a blacklist. If you complain about conditions, you you don't get to work for Disney anymore. Other people said, no, that's ridiculous. She's great to work with. So I'm very, I'm very curious to see how this all plays out yeah. over the next few weeks and months and years here, because I'm sure this will not be a quick fight. Yeah, but I, I just think they have produced too much stuff, and that is not a Victoria Alonso problem. You know, I think Iger is, you know, clearly intent on dialing back the cadence of this stuff, both so it can be better, but also so it can feel more special, right? I mean, I think people, even folks who like this stuff, you know, are getting a little exhausted by it. And you can't sustain a world-conquering franchise only on the fanboys, which was sort of the insight of the Marvel Cinematic Universe in the first place, right? That, like, you could persuade people who had not been reading these comics since they were five years old to come out for this stuff on a consistent cadence and, in fact, to have it be the thing that they would sort of consistently come out for, even if they weren't as interested in other things. But, you know, the sheer volume of that demand has gotten exhausting. And if the stuff is not good, if it doesn't feel special or big or visually exciting— you know, that's a huge problem for the brand and for this huge profit center for Disney. The real question here is, do we feel like there is a change in the air? Look, I mean, we're talking about this now. Guardians of the Galaxy 3 is probably going to come out and make $200 million in its opening weekend. And everyone's going to be like, comic book movies are back, baby. Yeah. But I do think I do get the sense that we're in a much different phase than we were, say, five years ago when you could have – what was it? it? Was I guess it was 2019 when Captain Marvel and Aquaman came out, and both of those movies made a billion dollars worldwide somehow, even though they're neither of them is particularly good. I mean, Aquaman's okay. Yeah. But, like, neither of them is particularly good. Enormous hits. Enormous, huge, yeah. huge hits. And I don't think marginal stuff like that is going to succeed anymore. I mean, just look at Shazam. Shazam 2, yeah. right? It's, it's not going to make $100 million in the United yeah. States, which is, uh, like— it's going to make Morbius money, which is bad, yeah. bad sign for the state of comic book movies. It's interesting. So I almost always see movies at around the same time of day, same day of the week, same theater. You know, I've done that for sort of the past couple of years, actually. And so it's been interesting to see like how empty or full those theaters are, whether I'm seeing a Marvel movie or a superhero movie or something like 65, the Adam Driver movie we talked about a couple of weeks ago. And it's been interesting to me to see the audiences tick up for these sort of non-franchise movies, which I'm generally seeing at like noon on a Friday, so a time when most people are at work. And I'm starting to see more people show up for 65, for Megan, you know, definitely for Creed Three, um, And so... I am feeling that, and this is total anecdotal, right? I mean, but, you know, I'm definitely seeing that audience interest tick back up for the movies that are not the big franchise movies. And no wonder, right? I mean, they're like, they're surprising. They're interesting. As we'll talk about when we get to John Wick, they often look a hell of a lot better than the sort of really, really mediocre, just obviously kind of, you know, penciled in stuff that Marvel is putting on the screen. And, they're just a better time at the movies. I think that, 
you know, if I were Bob Iger, I would scale back to like maybe two tent poles in a TV series a year. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Um, and we haven't really talked about Jonathan Majors at all. And I feel like that's tricky to talk about because, you know, his attorneys claim there's a lot of evidence. We don't know about the sort of – we don't know very much about the yeah. accusation yet except for the fact that it includes, you know, a charge of strangulation, which yeah. is, you know, anyone who knows about domestic violence stuff knows it's just a huge, bright, flaring red flag for serious other stuff. But, you know, I mean, especially with The Flash coming up, we're in this you know uncomfortable place where you have pretty serious allegations against these two big stars. And, you know, it's just – it's a reminder that these are risky endeavors, right? I mean, yeah. if you're putting, you know, a billion-dollar bet on someone's shoulders – Man, you better be sure that they can handle it. Well, yeah. This, and I also mean, be aware that you know people in those circumstances are going to be targets in some ways. Like I'm not – I'm absolutely not saying this woman is lying um, under – like I do not have the evidence. I cannot yeah. make a judgment on this allegation. But in the corporate world, you have things called key man clauses at companies that are incredibly dependent on one founder. And the corporate equivalent here would be Kevin Feige, but the pub- you have a bunch of sort of public-facing key men on these franchises. And, you know, it's not shocking as these universes get bigger that some of them either would not handle them well or, you know, would have bad relationships. It just – given human beings plus time equals some sort of inevitable disaster somewhere. And – but, yeah, it doesn't feel great. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I was kind of conflicted about the, the Majors news because, you know, on the one hand, very serious allegations. I, he got arrested. It's not like it's not like it's somebody wrote yeah. a blind item, uh, you know, uh, at Perez Hilton or something. Um, he, he got arrested yeah. by the police and and went went to, you know, jail for a little bit. Uh, so, like, it's it's a serious thing. It's a real thing. The instant assumption of guilt bugged me a little bit in the way that all of these stories do. Yeah. Like, I, I do think that, you know, trying these things on Twitter with incomplete information is usually a really bad idea. Yeah. It's not fair to anyone involved, the victim or the the perpetrator. Uh, or the and, police who have to do their or job the or a prosecutor yeah. who's going to bring an eventual case if one happens, you know. Yeah. So, I mean, there's there's lots of uh, I didn't love that aspect of it. But again, just going back to the like the Robert Downey Jr. thing. Right. Like there, you know, they put a 20 billion dollar franchise, what turned into a 20 billion dollar franchise in the hands of a guy who had been run out of Hollywood for drugs and alcohol, yeah. like like went to jail. Like he was not a safe bet. Um, and it all worked out for them. And eventually it was not going to work. out. Eventually there was going to be somebody somewhere. Who did something. Yeah. And the other thing, I will say the other thing I I was a, a little taken aback by was some of the, there was a little bit of glee in the Jonathan Majors news in the sense that there were blind items uh, before this had happened about like, oh, this, this new guy that everybody loves, he's terrible to work with, he's a monster on set, blah, blah, blah. And then they were like, oh, is this the guy? And, and uh, yeah, this is him. And like, you're conflating two different things. Like I can be a terrible coworker. Yeah. And not. Also, you know, yeah. uh, you're beating and choking women like that's that's two different things. So I, yeah. I like uh, there again, uh, social media makes everything so ugly so quickly. Yeah. I was I was like kind of put off by the whole thing. But again, like if he did it, Marvel's got a real bad, real tough decision to make because he is in everything for them coming yeah. up. I mean, they the whole the next like five movies and two TV shows are all centered around him. So. Yeah. And, you know, DC did not exactly like set a strong precedent here with, you know, 
tolerating Ezra Miller seemingly rampaging around the United States doing God knows what. You know, it's it's a real interesting moment for this industry. And it was probably always going to come to something like this where it's like, well, if it's hundreds of millions of dollars or our integrity, you know, we like money. I mean, there's a sort of ugly Scrooge McDuck effect here. And yeah, it's, we don't know what happened, but it is going to be an interesting moment. That is for sure. Yeah. All right. Well, I mean, what do you think? Is Are we hitting a new era here? Is the, is the age of comic books over? Are we headed into something even worse? Are we headed into the era of video games? What's going on? Oh, man, I don't know. Um, if we're in the era of video games and, like, I, I got to dust off some skills or just, like, you know, schlep myself off to an old age home or something. Or you and Peter have to teach me how to play video games because I, I am in trouble. So It's real easy. If, pick it right up. Okay. All right. Well, when this becomes a video games podcast, uh, I will... I will, you know, manfully pick up my controller and go off to the content mines. Um, No, I mean, I think obviously both these stories are controversies. It's probably pretty non-troversial that at some point the Marvel machine was going to develop some loop screws because it involves human beings and huge amounts of money. Yeah. Volatile combination. Uh, Certainly, certainly a controversy. All right. Make sure to swing by Bulwark Plus for a bonus episode on Friday. We're going to talk about, like, what the best comparison for John Wick and its franchise is. Because it is almost sui generis, just in terms of critical and commercial success. We'll talk about that on Friday. Uh, But speaking of John Wick, on to our main event, John Wick Chapter 4. As a heads up, I'm just going to put it out there now. going to be spoilers in this conversation for the movies in this series, uh, including the end of this movie. So if you if you need to if you want to catch up on the films, go do that now. Pause it. We'll be here when you get back. You don't you don't want to listen. So you don't want to have it all spoiled for you. Okay, so go do that. All right, John Wick Chapter Four picks up sometime after the events of the third entry in the series, uh, which closed with hitman extraordinaire John Wick, who's played by Keanu Reeves, getting shot off the roof of the Continental Hotel by its owner Winston, who's played by Ian McShane. Recovered from his injuries, Wick is now out to destroy the high table once and for all. He's traveling back to the desert to kill the Elder. Needless to say, uh, this infuriates the people in charge of this whole world of assassins, and a a new force rises from the chaos, promising to take Wick down. This is the Marquis, who's played by Pennywise himself, Bill Skarsgård. He demolishes the Continental and kills its concierge, Sharon, who's played by the great... Lance Reddick, R.I.P. He brings a blind swordsman played by Donnie Yen into the fold and tells him to find and kill Wick or he's going to kill Donnie Yen's daughter. And he ups the bounty on our hero's head to unfathomable sums of money in hopes of getting a tracker who's played by Shamir Anderson uh, to take him down. What follows is almost three straight hours of globetrotting action featuring some of the best action stars uh, in the game. Donnie Yen, of course, uh, who is just wonderfully physical and comic in this, uh, Hiroki Sonata, Clancy Brown. Most excitingly for action fans, you've got Scott Atkins in this, who's the, he's the king of the high-octane VOD action flick. He shows up in a fat suit as a deranged German. It's lovely. Uh, Marco Zoror, who's a Chilean stuntman and coordinator who folks will recognize as one of the best. I mean, he's the people in this movie are just amazing. John Wick Chapter 4 is kind of overwhelming, if I'm going to be a little bit honest. You get the sense that director and one-time Keanu Reeves stuntman Chad Stileski realized he would never get this much money or this much freedom ever again. So he just he just did everything. He did everything he could think of, right? Desert horse chase slash shootout. 
automobile frogger around the Arc de Triomphe, endless flaming shotgun battle shot with a, a single take from an overhead crane that floats around a house like you're looking down on a floor plan on a Redfin. Buster Keaton's style fight up 200 steps, followed by a pratfall down it, and then followed by a fight back up it. It's everything. It's too much. It's too much. In 169 minutes, I felt like it was overboard. Uh, every action beat goes on a little too long, and there are so many of them that they started to lose their impact by the end. And yet, you still have to admire this for what it is, which is like a kind of genuinely epic bozo action movie just stuffed to the brim with ideas like ideas about action but also about the nature of human society look i know some folks roll their eyes when i get going on this topic but the john wick franchise is i think much deeper philosophically than a lot of people give it credit for it is fundamentally a meditation on order and the very basis of society it tackles a very basic question from whence does authority derive does authority come from a system from laws, from rules, handed down by elders, judged by adjudicators, pronounced by harbingers? Is the system, this thing that can consecrate or deconsecrate hotels as places where murders can and cannot happen, is the system in charge? Or does authority come from individual excellence, from the ability to shake off and transcend that system, to ignore its rules? This is the question that the last three movies in the series have been grappling with. And I still think the best, most important scene in this whole series of films is one of the simplest. It comes at the end of the second movie where John Wick kills a man who has taken shelter in Winston's hotel. Wick is saying that the rules do not apply to him. And very interestingly in that scene, uh, Winston himself is, is scared and apprehensive when John Wick comes into the hotel because he knows that the balance of power is about to shift. He knows that things are about to change forever. And it does. And the system basically spends the next two movies that follow uh, insisting to John Wick, you have to follow the rules and him saying, no, I don't. And then by the end of the fourth film, again, spoilers here, Wick has the freedom he has sought. He has defeated his enemy at the high table in a one-on-one -on -one duel. He is free from their obligations. He can live his life, but he's got nothing to live for. He has nothing. His wife is dead. His purpose, which is being the best hitman on, on the planet, is gone. So he just lays down and dies. For a series that is exuberantly over the top as this one has been, the ending is is like straight up melancholy. This is a melancholy series in a way that I was not really expecting it to be. It's not a letdown exactly. Um, it's just more subdued than we might have expected. John Wick, he does not have a purpose anymore. And a purposeless life is not worth living. So he doesn't. He chooses not to live anymore. Uh, Alyssa, am I reading too much into this? Am I am I giving this movie too much credit, this whole series too much credit? No, I don't think so, although I would add a couple of thoughts to it. Um, you know, to the extent that this movie is a meditation on power, it also suggests that outstanding individuals can't affect system-wide change, right? Because the setup for this movie is kind of that John Wick is coming for the whole structure of authority, of the high table, but he doesn't end up doing that, right? He ends up in a personal duel with the Marquis. He assures his liberty and Kane's individual liberty. But at the end, he is still playing by the high table's rules, right? Like you have the harbinger there um, proceeding over the duel, making sort of rulings on the final outcomes. You know, the elder who is this sort of random manifestation of the high table is dead. The Marquis is dead. But it's pretty clear that the high table endures, right? I mean – the structure of authority, which is uniformly presented as sort of inflexible and corrupt and, you know, should be defeated and in, you know, individual cases such as John's, 
is defeated endures overall. And so John Wick's excellence creates very small individual carve-outs for himself, but does not actually fundamentally challenge the entire system, right? Am I am I reading that correctly? I mean, I think that's basically right. I mean, like, this is what... So when I'm watching a movie like this and the hero dies at the end, I often feel emotions. I don't like yeah. feeling emotions, but sometimes these, movie make, these movies make me feel emotions. Like, for instance, at the end of... No Time to Die, the most recent, yes. um, you know, James Bond movie. Again, I'm going to talk spoilers here about uh, an old James Bond movie. So if you haven't seen that one yet, you might want to flip this off here. But at the at the end of that movie, James Bond dies. He chooses to sacrifice himself for his uh, for his his family, his his child. And I felt emotion at the end of that because he's making a sacrifice. John Wick is not making, there's no sacrifice that John Wick is making here. He is not, he is not tearing down the system. He's not sacrificing himself to better everybody else. He's just, he just wants to be free. And then he realizes that the freedom grants him nothing. There's an emptiness to it. I mean, there is like a, nihilistic is not the right word here, but there, there is an empty hollowness to, to his whole character that, I don't know exactly how to, how to to grapple with that from a series that I really really love yeah. uh, and really enjoy and like maybe I'm looking at all the wrong things here and all that actually really matters is how clever all of the individual action set pieces are and they're very good we can talk about that as well. Um, no, I think I think there is something interesting happening there. Um, and in a weird way, the emptiness of it I think increases the melancholy of the movie, right? Because it is the pointlessness of the quest is its own tragedy, right? I mean, with Helen gone, with John back in the game, you know, there's there's a line somewhere in the movie about it's like a good death is possible only after a good life. And it's like, we have not lived good lives. And this movie in particular really draws these parallels between John and characters who have children, specifically daughters, right? I mean, both Kane and his friend in Japan, whose name I am forgetting at the moment because— Played by uh, Hiroki Sonata. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Shimatsu. The, um, the owner of the uh, Osaka, Osaka Continental. Yeah. Both of them have daughters, and both of them are willing to go to extraordinarily lengths to protect those daughters, right? And Shimatsu, you know, ultimately sacrifices himself to save his daughter and to sort of preserve her purpose. Kane, who, you know— in that lovely scene in the church, you know, he and John are friends. There are, you know, these are men who feel senses of obligation, bonds to John, but they also have something else either to live for or to die for. And these are movies about, they're so interesting in the sense, both that they are, they are conservative in the sense that they argue that women and marriage are a sort of constraining and morally uplifting influence on men, right? To a certain extent, right? Like, you know, John does terrible things to get out of the game for Helen and to try and be a loving husband and a good person. And when she's gone and when his dog, who is like the last vestige of his tie to that, is killed, you know, he loses that sort of restraining and civilizing influence. At the same time, the movie is, you know, really sort of, sad about, you know, it, it repeatedly emphasizes the sadness of men who are sort of pulled into this, you know, violent world, this sort of protector at all costs, you know, these men whose talent is primarily for violence in a way that locks them out of domestic happiness, which is presented sort of over and over again as this really high ideal. And, you know, the the movies make violent masculinity look unbelievably fun, but it's always at tremendous cost for the characters. And so there is there 
the movies, I think, are compelling in part because they're playing with a bunch of ideas about masculinity from the left and right that are not entirely developed to their full extent in either political system. And so it is tricky. It is messy. Um, it is melancholy. And I think that's actually what kind of makes it fun. Yeah. I've watched these movies like once a year now uh, since since the third one has come out just because I really enjoy – like I enjoy the actual physical kinetic yes. uh, work that they're doing in this. And this is – again, we can we can discuss this. But the, the actual stunt work in these movies is amazing. The, the fight choreography and coordination, the uh, shootouts, uh, et cetera, And et cetera. the willingness to let the fights breathe, right? I mean these are not fights that are edited within an inch of their lives to make them work. There are scenes that where you can have longer shots and see more of what's going on because the choreography and the stunt work are so impeccable. Yeah. Um, though I do think that this movie makes one mistake, uh, mm-hmm. I think, which is is uh, particularly in the, the kind of Arc de Triomphe Frogger yeah. scene where there's more CGI in that sequence than just about anything else in the series, I think. I, like just lots of cars that aren't there driving around, you know, yeah. I, like obviously you can't do something like that without see like that, that yeah. shot is not safe to do that. Mo- yeah. That whole sequence is not safe to do. If you're not using lots and lots of CGI, um, yeah. it's probably not safe to do even with lots and lots of CGI. Uh, but, but that's what we pay stuntmen for. That's what we, that's what we pay stuntmen for. But you know, it's, uh, it's slightly more weightless than most of the other stuff in this movie and the other movies. I will say that there, there was a moment in this movie where I literally just laughed out loud at the audacity of what I was seeing. It's the the kind of overhead crane shot in the the apartment building or whatever that is where uh, John Wick is using the flaming shotgun bull- shells and, they, and he's just going room to room, like clearing it out. And it yeah. goes on and on. It does. There are no cuts. I mean, like usually when in one of these long takes, you can see the cuts like the, yeah. you can see, you know where the seams are if you're paying attention. On this shot, I have no idea if that was all one one take or what, um, but it was amazing. One thing that's interesting, so I saw this movie with Peter, um, so even though he's not here, I can speak to his reaction a little bit. Um, and he responded to that sequence, as I think did you, more strongly than I did. And I wonder if to a certain extent that is a vestige of having played video games or not, because I felt like it was – it felt very, like, gamey to me. It was like watching, like, John Wick The Sims. And I thought it was, like, clever, but – I didn't find it quite as engaging as some of the other sequences. The two that really stood out for me, I thought the first fight at the Osaka Continental was so great that the movie really, like, has some trouble recovering momentum from that. Just because, like, the humor and, like, Fred Astaire-like dance qualities that Donnie Yen brings to that sequence, just, like, seeing them bust out in that sequence are is so much fun. Well, the, that, well, there are like seven different discrete action ideas in that sequence. Yes. I mean, like to, to the to the simple one that's like, what if sumo wrestlers versus armored guys with machine guns? Like, yes. what if we did that? What I, would that look like? Or, or I love like, the thing with the um, the light-sensitive doorbells. Yeah, yeah, the doorbells. The door, yeah. Like, how would a blind man actually fight in a place like this? Oh, he'd set up little sound sensors that yes. he could key on. Like, I like again, just the, the, the number of ideas there. And this is what I mean when I say, like, Chad Stileski had $100 million, and you could see every penny of it on the screen. And that's almost to the detriment of the movie. Like it yeah. does, there's a little too much to it. It's funny. Yeah. I, I really liked it. I, and But I, I'm much cooler on this than a lot of our critic friends who have just been, you know, raving about it, saying it's an absolute epic. 
there's almost too much. I like I'm reminded of a scene in an episode of South Park where Kyle Bravlovsky goes to see the Passion of the Christ and he doesn't want to see it. He, he like, he, you know, he's been told it's anti-Semitic, doesn't want to see it. And as he's watching it and you can hear the kind of like torture of Jesus in the background, he like throws up on himself at one point. He's just like slumped over in his chair and like vomiting on himself. And that's like almost how I felt, but in a positive way, if that makes yeah. sense while watching yeah. this, because it's just I'm gorging, gorging on action. Yeah. And I think that like, you know, the fight up the steps to Sacre-Cœur and then having him like fall all the way down and having to do it again. It's like, I get it. I get why they couldn't resist it. But it's like, you did it once. The returns are just inevitably going to be diminished. And, you know, again, like I would rather have, I guess there's part of me that would like rather endure that sort of 10% that's too much to have 90% of Chad Stahelski's ideas in there as opposed to like 70%. But it's like, it's the extra 10%. It's like, I don't know, getting the refill of the popcorn when you didn't really need it. Like, it's good, but it makes you feel a little bad. Like, eh. yeah. But you'd rather still have had the popcorn. Look, you, know? you paid you paid for the popcorn with the free refills. If you don't get the free refill, you're refills. leaving money on the table. Yeah. And that's, that's basically this movie in a nutshell. If you don't get the second fight up the stairs, you're just leaving John Wick on the table. You don't want to leave any John Wick on the table. All right. Uh, what do we think? Thumbs up or thumbs down on John Wick Chapter 4? Alyssa. Oh, thumbs up. Super fun. Thumbs up. Thumbs up to this whole series, which is, I think, almost inarguably the best action franchise of the last 30 years. But we'll discuss that more in the bonus episode coming Friday, because that's where we do this. We do this there. So go to atma.thebulwark.com. Sign up. If you're not a member, make sure you you, you become a member so you can listen to it, because it's going to be great. All right. That is it for this week's show. Make sure to head over to Bulwark Plus for our bonus episode on Friday. Tell your friends. Strong recommendation from a friend is basically the only way to grow podcast audiences. If you don't grow, we'll die. If you did not love today's episode, please come to me on Twitter at SunnyBunch. I'll convince you that this is, in fact, the best show in your podcast feed. See you guys next week. Bye.